And the reason they haven't been paying their mortgage, Joe, is it's typically they lost their job because in the recession or they got divorced or in some cases the person has passed away and there's no heir. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's best ever guests as they share it with you. It's the best ever advice with none of the fluff. Let's go. Heard of crowdfunding and still curious about how you can benefit from it? Well, we've got a step-by-step guide put together just for you by the best ever team and patch of land, the industry's leading crowdfunding experts. The best crowdfunding crash course ever, episodes 152, 159, 166, and 173 will provide you all you need to know to get started and begin benefiting immediately. Whether it's getting access to funds for your project or passively investing in other people's deals. The time is now to get started with Patch of Land. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever to grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless and I'm here with today's guest, Paul Burkett. Hi, Paul. Hey, how you doing, Joe? I'm doing well. And Paul is joining us from New York City, New York, specifically for any of you New York City-ers. He's in the West Village and I am in the East Village. So we're totally rivals. (laughs) Paul's the founder of Automation Finance and he is a distressed note buyer. So he he buys non-performing assets and transitions them into performing status. So basically his company buys pools of non-performing residential mortgages and works with borrowers to address the cause of their distress. And he's from Dublin, but that's not his non-real estate related interesting fact. His non-real estate related interesting fact is that he used to be in the Guinness Book of World Records for helping build and mailing the largest greeting card in the entire world. So with that being said, Paul, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background, what you're focusing on now, and maybe even talk a little bit about that greeting card because I'm sure that piqued their interest. Maybe I could send everybody a best ever greeting card. Oh, boom, even better, yeah. Yeah, that was something we did when way back when I was in college, we did something to uh, to raise money for a, a children's charity in Dublin. And so uh, a gang of, uh, I guess, 200 students uh, and I built um, a 100 uh, yard by 40 yard uh, greeting card, which took up four basketball courts, folded it up and mailed it. And it was um, it was displayed in the largest mall in downtown Dublin. And people came and signed it and paid a few bucks towards the charity. So it was a great idea. And unfortunately, last year, I think it was last year, so this is 20 years that held the record, um, a gang of kids in India beat us. So, you know, boo, India. <laughs> well, you're the one that started it. Yeah, it was just some fun. And I mean, it was amazing that it lasted so long. But uh, so I finished up in college in Dublin and then went and did um, about 25 years in corporate, mostly corporate America, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, always was investing in real estate. One day I was walking past the bank and it was like my sixth month in my in my corporate job at a very modest salary. And they had a poster in the window basically saying, we give mortgages to people. And I thought, wow, I wonder would they give a mortgage to me? I mean, they can't be that dumb, right? So I went in, applied for a mortgage, and they say, hey. so I now had a budget and went and bought a house and rented out the other two bedrooms in the house. And, you know, that was when the love, love affair began. And I, I guess I did that 
you know, ever since. So just every time I had any cash, I bought another house and rented it. And now you're you're not doing that full time. Well, I'm I'm sure you're still buying real estate, but your business is around note buying and non-performing mortgages. So I've always found it interesting when investors transition into that as a focus, because at least for me, it's not a natural transition. It's not something I immediately think of whenever I think of real estate investing. I don't think of note buying. So what got you into that? Yeah, I mean, it's not a natural, you know, evolution. And in fact, when I got started, one of the biggest mistakes I made was thinking that because I'd, you know, owned quite a lot of real estate, I somehow knew something about the note space. But what actually happened was um, I, I got to the US in 2011 and I started buying single family homes in good rental areas. Um, and I'd sold quite a bit of, you know, other real estate that I'd owned. So after two or three years, I ended up with, you know, about 40 single family homes. And then I bought a small commercial building and that had another 17 or 17 units in it. And I found that um, I couldn't really scale the business anymore. I was spending all my evenings and all my weekends working on administrative kind of of work. Um, And so, and that was on top of having a fairly demanding day job. So uh, I decided that I needed to, to, to segue into something else. And so I started researching different things and found the note space. Um, and I don't know if you've ever read that book, uh, E-Myth by, by Gerber, but one of the principles which I completely agree with is you want to spend your time working on your business, uh, not in your business. So setting up the systems and managing the systems. And I've always been a, a system kind of a guy. Um, and I found that my systems couldn't scale anymore unless I gave up my day job and worked full time buying single family homes and renting them out. And while it was a great hobby, it wasn't something I was passionate about. I didn't particularly enjoy it. And I didn't think the work was particularly interesting for me. I don't do any of my own rehab work. All I do was buy and hold. So all I was doing really was was paperwork. Um, and it was the same paperwork pretty much all the time. So I started researching the note space about two years ago um, and thought that that, that was just super interesting. And so transitioned slowly over, you know, six months of, of hard kind of academic study because it's a fairly complicated business um, and started buying notes. Um, and then a year later, I've sold pretty much all my single family homes or my commercial building I still have, but that's for sale. And I, we will just be 100% of our time focused on the note space. Um, and the reason for doing that is we have bought 10 times the number of notes in a quarter of the time in the note space. And all of the issues that come up in the note space can be handled, you know, from an office on the phone, whereas most of my real estate related problems require visits and contractors and arranging quite a lot of moving parts. So going back to that idea of scalability, you can just own and run a lot more notes with the same number of members of staff. We're just seven people now, but but we're growing. Um, Then you could running you know, you couldn't run 500 rental homes with just seven people when you allow for managers and, you know, all the contracting and everything. So, so it was really about what was, what were we trying to build? And what we wanted to build was a company that could kind of survive us. That was a, a long-term and um, profitable growing company. And the single family home rental just didn't really fit it. And I felt that multifamily was getting too expensive to really start to, you know, to dive in there in an aggressive way. So net notes was the, was the, was the perfect solution. For somebody just getting started in real estate and they hear you talking about note buying, 
I mean, I wouldn't have known what the heck that was whenever I read Rich Dad Poor Dad and, you know, investing for dummies. I still wouldn't know what it is. So what is it? What is it exactly? So when a bank um, makes a mortgage loan to an investor or to an end user, they do so on the basis that the end user is going to make their payments. And in 98% of cases over time, they do about 2% of loans every year go into default. But across that period of 2007, 8, 9, 10, um, the number of loans that went into default wasn't two. It was more like 10 or 11. So by the end of uh, 2011, most of the banks had just a vast quantity of uh, non-performing loans on their balance sheets. And so the banks had to do something with them. And in the early days, what they were doing was they were foreclosing. So they would send the borrower a notice to say, you haven't paid your mortgage and we're taking your house. And they would go through the process of taking the home. Um, And that had two big problems for them. The first one was banks are set up for making loans and managing performing loans. They're not set up for taking people's houses. That's an entirely different business, much more labor intensive. So they didn't do a particularly good job. And I think the banks would admit that they didn't do a particularly good job. And so their costs were much, much higher. So when they eventually took the person's house and sold it, they ended up netting much less than they thought they would. Um, and the second thing is when they take people's houses, what are they going to do with them? Banks make loans. They don't, they're not you know, real estate investors. So they decided in about 2009, 2010 to start selling the loans rather than just foreclosing and taking the houses. And so they will come to me and other investors and say, here is a pool of houses. Let's say there are 500 houses on the pool. And they will give you a spreadsheet which has the borrower's name, address, and every single fact about the house. And they'll say, what will you buy that loan for? Tell me, how much will you pay? And so you go through each of the 500 loans and you make a bid for each of those loans. You then buy the loans and then you contact the homeowner and you say, I am your new lender. Why have you not been paying your your mortgage? And the reason they haven't been paying their mortgage, Joe, is the reasons you would think. It's typically they lost their job because in the recession, lots of people lost their jobs. Or they got divorced or some other family um, uh, happening like that. Or in some cases, the person has passed away and there's no heir. So there's a list of reasons why people stop paying. And so your job then as the asset manager of those loans is to figure out why are they not paying and solve that problem. So let's say uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, typical example you would hear, Mr. and Mrs. Smith worked, you know, they're in a small town somewhere They both worked. One worked in the factory and the other one worked in the school. And guess what? The factory closed down. So that plant is gone and there's no job. And they used to have 50 grand a year of income and now they've only got 20. So your job is to figure out how can you um, keep them in their home on the basis, on the understanding that they only have $20,000 of income. And the way you do it really is so long as the payment to you is less than the payment they would make to a landlord to rent a house. They're better staying in their home, right? Right. So it's just it's a simple problem of doing the math. And so that's what we do all day, every day. What are the different types of outcomes that can take place whenever you buy a note from a bank? There are, I guess, four or five major ones. The, the first one would be the thing that you always want to do is sometimes we call up a borrower and they go, oh, wow, I'm so happy you called. We've been collecting the payments, but the bank wouldn't accept them because they didn't own the loan anymore. Where do we send the money? So that's just fantastic. Yes. That doesn't happen all that often, though. 
the, the second thing you'll do is what you call a workout, which is the borrower owes you 500 bucks a month, but they just can't pay 500. So you agree to take 250. So that's, that's a workout. In some cases, particularly loans that were bought at the peak in places like um, certain parts of California, certain parts of Arizona, where they were bought by speculators or flippers or people who with 110% mortgages, where they've no skin in the game, they may say to you, look, I just don't want the house. I don't care. And they'll deed the home over to you. So, so you'll take a deed in lieu, of, in lieu of foreclosure and then you own that house. And what we'll do with that is we'll put that house typically on Craigslist and we'll sell it at you know, 80% or 85% of, of, uh, of its value and just get rid of it because we don't want to be um, a, land, a landlord uh, and a homeowner. Um, in some cases, you can't find the borrower, so you have to foreclose. So you go through the, the legal process of foreclosing. Um, and in some houses, and typically we'll know this before we buy, the house has either uh, is about to be or has been demolished by the city for ordinance breaches or the house is damaged in a fire or a storm or something, and, and you write that that off and, and either donate it or demolish it. Does that spreadsheet indicate the ones that have been demolished? Rarely, but there are a number of um, data services you can buy. So you can buy those and you'll find that if I find a, an asset that has six or seven code violations on it, I know there's a problem. And when I call, typically you can call the local fire department. They'll tell you that there was a fire or that it's been, uh, you know, it used to be uh, a house that, that, is, that there was a fire and now there's vandals have got in there or there's homeless people living in it or whatever. And you figure out pretty quickly where the, where the errors are. I know there are tax benefits to investing in real estate. Are there tax benefits to note buying? The tax benefits come not the, in, the, in the traditional way that you would with depreciation and so on. But there are pretty big tax benefits depending on how you run the business. So I'm not an accountant and I'm not giving legal advice. But um, when you make a purchase, you can you can write off quite a big chunk of the, the loans that you buy. So you don't get a tax benefit per se, but you do get a cash flow benefit. Um, you, you ultimately always pay the taxes in the end. The, the, the reason why you would invest in notes is that it's just so much more scalable. It's pretty profitable. Um, and you can take the money that you make in notes and maybe buy something that does have uh, a big tax benefit. Out of those scenarios that you mentioned, they pay on schedule, you do a workout, you do a deed in lieu where he sells the house, you can't find the borrower, for, so you foreclose, and the house has been demolished by the city, so it's a tax write-off. Yeah. I think I know the answer, but what's your ideal outcome for this? What you always want is for the, for the borrower to start paying. Sometimes the borrower will say, look, I just want to pay off the loan. Will you just give me a, a deal if I pay off the whole loan? And we sometimes do that. That's not our ideal outcome, but, but you, you, can sometimes, uh, you can sometimes get it. So you buy a mortgage, let's say the mortgage is 50000 and the borrower says, well, look, I have 20 grand in my IRA and I can make a, a loan from my IRA. I can borrow from my IRA. What will you sell me the loan for? What will you, you know, allow me to fully pay off the loan? And we might take 25 or 30,000 on that because we may have only bought it for, you know, 10 or 15. I know this varies, but on average, how many pennies on the dollar are you paying for these discounted notes? And you're right, it does vary because if you're buying a, m a mansion in Malibu, you'll pay 90% probably of the, of the value of the loan. If you're buying, um, you know, a strip of homes in a war zone, you're going to pay two. I mean, we've paid 0.25 of one penny for loans. And how do you get access to mansions in Malibu and then 
properties that are the exact opposite? I mean, because those are clearly across different state lines or at least cities. Sure. And there's, a, there's kind of a whole marketplace for, for selling loans. So we don't buy mansions in Malibu and, and we don't buy um, um, shells in war zones either. But I was just saying to give you, to give you the, the idea, our typical um, uh, property is um, around $150,000 um, and we'll buy either the first lien or the second lien. Um, and we've been buying a lot of second liens uh, more recently. And you buy them, there's a number of different places, a few online marketplaces. But as we've scaled, we've started to buy them directly from the banks. So we spend Mondays and Tuesdays calling um, asset managers at banks around the U.S. looking for loans. What are the pros and cons of buying a first lien versus a second lien? The pros of buying a first lien is that it's a little bit more simple because you're just buying a mortgage on a house. So you just need to make sure that the house is insured, that the owner makes his uh, or her payments to you, and that the taxes are up to date. So if those three things are yes, yes, and yes, then it's all good. But you pay a much higher price for a first lien. You might pay 70% or 65% of the asset value. When you buy a second lien, it is a different um, animal insofar as it's more of a finance product than worrying about the worrying about the home per se. So then you're worried about the borrower's propensity to pay. Is this loan, you know, ideally you'd buy a loan where the first lien and the second lien, when you add them together, they sum to less than the value of the asset. But often you're buying where the home is actually underwater. And so then you're trying to figure out how do I incentivize the borrower to, to start making payments when they haven't been paying for a few years. Um, and also, if you had to foreclose, how are you going to get any money out of this? So it's much more important how you buy, you know, that you make sure that you don't overpay when you buy, and also that you do good due diligence, um, particularly on the borrower in terms of his credit and so on, to see uh, what his propensity to pay is in the future, or is he just going to not pay and never pay? What's the number one way you get borrowers to start paying if they haven't paid in years? The first thing to do is to get in contact with them. That's your first challenge. And we have a whole bunch of different ways uh, of doing that. But once you've got them on the phone, it's usually, it depends on what their motivation is. If they just don't care, then they're never going to pay. So you're going to have to foreclose. But if they care even a little bit, is to make the deal so appealing to them that they can't say no. So we make an offer to a borrower that they just can't say no to. So we've been pretty successful in getting people to, to, to pay. And so what we'll do is we'll help them with a number of things. They want to repair their credit. They want to keep their home. They just can't afford it. So if we can solve those three problems in a creative way, then that's pretty exciting for them. If you owe $500 a month and I find a way to say, okay, well, look, I'll only charge you $300 a month. And at the end of the first year, every payment that you've made, I will match. So if you've made $3,600 of payments in the first year, I'll match it with $3,600. So now your, your, your mortgage, your debt has gone down by $7,200. And not only that, but I'll make the first year interest free. So you just make the deal so attractive that they'd be nuts not to take it. But of course, Joe, some people choose not to take it. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? Do really, really rigorous due diligence. And there's always another deal. I remember in my early purchasing years, I thought this is the only home that will ever get sold. So I have to have it. I must buy it. And so I cut corners and made some mistakes. In hindsight, they were small mistakes and I didn't lose much money. But in fact, in some of them, I made money. But it was 
it was luck, not skill. You need to really do your due diligence. Make sure you understand 100% of everything about that deal and then pull the trigger. There'll always be another deal. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Go for it. First, a quick word for our best ever sponsors. Crowdfunding. You've heard about it, and now it's time to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, is a leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-E-N-D.com forward slash best ever. All right, Paul, best ever book you've read? I've got two. Enid by Gerber and Seven Habits by Stephen Covey. Best ever listeners, I know you like audio, so you can go to freebesteverbook.com and get free audio versions of books like those. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learn from it. Selling encyclopedias door to door in Merced, California as a freshman. And I learned what grit is. And I learned what rejection is. And I learned what being lost in Merced, California is. (laughs) Best ever success habit you practice. Always plan the next day. And I'm terrible at planning, so I need to just make it as painless as possible. So I just do a post-it note every night for the next day. What are the 10 things that I'm going to do? And then I try my best to just do them. Best ever deal you've done? I bought a shell in London when I lived in London. It was best for two reasons. One was everyone told me I was out of my mind and I did it anyway. And I tripled my money in 14 or 15 months. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? We're building a system at Automation Finance to be able to massively scale the number of loans that we own and the way we work them out. And that will just produce, I believe, unbelievable outcomes, both for the homeowners and for our investors. Best ever way you like to give back? One of the awesome parts of this business is when you find homes that, you, that don't fit your business model, you can donate them. So we donate homes every month to vets around the country. Um, and it's an awesome thing to be able to do. And from the company point of view, it it really doesn't cost us anything. So it's just terrific. Everyone wins. Best ever quote. Oh, this is easy. Um, I read this early in my career. Uh, It's Calvin Coolidge. um, And it's kind of long, but nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and always will solve the problems of the human race. Just awesome. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Oh my God, there are so many. I think the biggest mistake I've always made has been not having some version of a plan where I was just randomly doing things. I had a goal of buying 30 houses, so I bought 30 houses. And only after buying them, I thought there would be some, you know, moment like at the Simpsons where, the, where the, the clouds part and the sun comes down on me. And I go, yes, I've achieved it. But really, all I had done was bought 30 houses and they had many things in common, but there really wasn't a plan. So always have some sort of a plan. And what's the best ever place to reach you? My email, I guess, paul at automationfinance.com. Paul, this has been a wonderfully educational conversation so grateful to have you on the show and share your best ever advice with best ever listeners and some of the takeaways i got from this is out the outcomes for note buying they're either going to pay you a schedule do a workout do a deed in lieu where you sell the house you won't be able to find the borrower so you foreclose on them 
or the house gets donated in your case you're donating it to veterans and the pros and cons of buying the first lien and second lien for the the pros would be it's more simple but the con is you pay a little bit of a premium about 70 percent of the asset value and i know that fluctuates based on the market and then the pros and cons of buying the second lien you have more of a risky proposition where you're worried about the borrower's propensity to pay as you said and then the, it's all about how do you incentivize a borrower to start making payments if they haven't paid in years and i love how you'd mentioned ideally the first and second lien total is less than the value of the asset and then also talking about how you get them to pay if they haven't paid in years and that's you make them a deal that they can't refuse reminds me of a movie quote where you help them repair their credit keep their home whatever it is the button that you need to push and sounds like you know your team has many many years of experience working on figuring out which button to push so just a wonderful conversation just great to hear from you great to meet you glad to have you on the show paul and we'll talk to you soon thanks so much joe bye bye hey you best ever listener do you want more then go to joefairless.com, where you'll get tons of free videos, templates, and content to help you get deals done. And remember to subscribe to the best ever show in iTunes, so you can keep getting your daily dose of the best real estate investing advice ever. 